On October 3rd, 2002, 20 years ago to the day, Josh Gimon sent an email to his ex-girlfriend, Katie. She was headed home for the weekend, and Josh asked if she would fetch the fleece liner for his Columbia jacket. The next day, Friday, October 4th, Katie ran into Josh's dad, Brian, at the Walmart near their hometown. Afterwards, she replied to Josh and confirmed that she would grab the liner and also grab his Gap sweatshirt, which she had previously borrowed. Katie explained that it was difficult seeing Brian and having to talk about Josh and think about him. She wrote, I don't feel too sad all of the time, but I miss you. I miss us. It will get easier, I'm sure. This is the Simply Vanished podcast, produced by Trembling Leaf Media in Minneapolis. I'm your host, Josh Newville. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for your dedication, your patience, your support as we work our way through our very first season of the show. I started this as a nights and weekend kind of side project, and I never could have imagined that it would have taken off this fast uh, and in this way. I am very, very grateful that we've had the you know, the tremendous support that we have in terms of tips and uh, listener support. And I want to do more of this. I want to help more than I already am. That means I got to make some changes. I'm a full-time civil rights attorney. I love the work that I do. I'm very proud of it. I've been with my firm for 12 years. My name is on the door. And so I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm going to leave my law firm and go solo. I'm going to practice by myself, meaning that I'll take you know, I'll continue to be an attorney, but I'll take fewer cases and try to free up a little bit more time to to work on these kinds of cases. Right now, I'm the only host, the only producer, the only investigator, the only website manager. You get the idea. On top of all that, I uh, am trying to be a husband and have some semblance of a social life. And so what I'm going to do in terms of freeing up time uh, will hopefully enable us to continue the incredible growth and expansion that we've had already with the podcast and eventually bring on some additional support. I'd love to have investigative help, to have you know production help. We're not there yet by any means, but we're you know if we keep moving in the direction that you've all helped us move, we we could be there sooner than later potentially. So uh, a couple things: one, please take the audience survey that's now live on simplyvanished.com on the homepage. There's a blue button that says audience survey. If you can click that provide some really basic demographic information. That will help us uh, and our hosting provider, our show, potential show sponsors, in terms of understanding who you are and help us better figure out in terms of uh, geographic coverage as we look to additional cases. Where are our listeners? Where are you interested in in hearing about stuff? Obviously, you can also send us tips and uh, feedback at simplyvanished.com via the contact form. But uh, that audience survey would be very helpful. And of course, you should check out our insider program. You can throw us a few bucks uh, a month, help us expand and get behind the scenes updates as we not only uh, look to expanded coverage of additional cases, but also continue to cover the Josh Gimon case in the background. We're on episode number seven of eight numbered episodes in this first season. 
uh, at least for now, will never close out a season until the case is officially solved, meaning that even as we expand and we start looking at other cases, we're still going to work on this case in the background. And so when we when we have major updates in, in a case or in, in the investigation, we will provide additional uh, numbered episodes that, that get to that. And in the meantime, we'll, we'll do behind the scenes updates. A lot to cover today in episode number seven. Let's dive right in. Number one, I have been really, really grateful to have continued conversations with Nick and Katie. As you know, they were the closest people to Josh in his final days at St. John's University. And Katie dated Josh even prior to that. She, uh, her and Josh met when they were kids. They dated in high school. They dated into college together. They, you know, stayed friends even after they broke up just uh, a few months prior to Josh's disappearance. And Josh's closest friend and roommate that he spent the most time with, was arguably best friends with, uh, Nick, him and Katie continued to be friends. They, They were friends, you know, as a result of meeting through Josh and then remained friends, uh, after Josh went missing. They've been, you know, more and more helpful as time has gone on. And I, want to tell you that even though the open lines of communication that I imagined or envisioned aren't uh, quite there yet, they, they have some reasons. And I haven't been able to tell you this until now, but one of those reasons is that early on uh, when I reached out to them, they both explained that they were pretty emotionally exhausted from having spent the better part of the last couple of years filming for an Unsolved Mysteries episode. And I can tell you that now because I I just saw a Google alert the other day uh, via IMDb that Netflix has announced the launch of its third season later this month, and they're going to be doing a case on Josh Guimond, um, or I'm sorry, an episode on Josh Guimond's case. And so that'll come out, I believe, on October 25th, um, possibly October 18th. I'm not quite sure from what I'm seeing online. And it's going to bring millions of new viewers, uh, new uh, people to Josh's case. And that makes me very hopeful that we'll continue to see the progress that we've already been seeing. And so Nick and Katie have explained that, you know, that was, that was actually quite difficult to film. And so the idea of, you know, doing a really in-depth podcast, um, and talking so much about Josh, I really, it's just made it hard for them to, you know, continue with their life when, you know, this was so traumatic for them. I, uh, Nonetheless, you know, they've, they've been talking here and there, not, um, not super in-depth, but they've been answering more and more smaller questions, and I really appreciate that, and I want to thank them for that and ask that Josh's other friends really consider doing the same because we, we really we, we are making progress more and more with their help. I want to give you an example of one of the updates that I've received from Nick as a result of talking to him more, and that's that on the evening that Josh was last seen, the night of November 9th into the early hours of November 10th, 2002. Nick gets back to his dorm room, looks across the hall from his own room and sees Josh's door open and that Josh is not in that room. Nick then sits down at his computer, opens up AOL Instant Messenger. For those of you that remember uh, AOL Instant Messenger or AIM as we called it, there was a buddy list, right? And if you had your privacy settings like most of us had them, it would display if you were idle or if you were active at that time. Nick recalls that when he got back that night, that Josh's 
buddy icon indicated that he had been idle for something like two or three hours. And although Nick doesn't recall that precise time that Josh had been idle at that point, he does recall that he provided that information to investigators in the immediate aftermath of Josh's disappearance. And so what's really good about that for us is that it tells us that investigators have a time frame that they can then compare to the the music player information and the other data points that we're getting and helping us determine whether or not Josh was, you know, he made it back to his computer or not that night, whether he made it back to the dorm room. As you know, there's no badging data to suggest that he came back in. There are no witness statements that he came back in, but uh, it seems like there were only one or two uh, roommates of his even home that night. They would have been on a different floor and perhaps sleeping. And certainly there, there was never a report from them that you know they saw Josh come back that evening. And so the weight of the evidence as it stands right now seems to suggest that Josh didn't make it back, although we still can't be certain. We're, we're going to continue to work on, on that angle as well. But assuming that Josh did not make it back to his dorm room that evening for the sake of argument, and assuming that he didn't accidentally drown or fall into quicksand or you know be eaten by snapping turtles or something ridiculous, the question then remains, where is Josh? Where did he end up that evening? There are really four categories of likely explanations, and they all at this point involve some level of foul play by uh, another person and or group of people. The first is that Josh had some sort of planned meeting with people that he that he did know. The second, that it was a planned meeting with someone that he didn't know, perhaps a meetup from online or something like that. The third, a unplanned meeting with someone that he knew. So he came across someone, for example, that that he knew. The fourth, that it was an unplanned meeting with someone that he did not know. There, again, are tips, leads, information on all four fronts, and we are working all of them. We are to the point where we are looking at individual names and groups of people. I can't share a lot of that information with you, although I'm going to give you, you know, one example of a specific name here in a bit. But I first, you know, I, I want you to hear first from Josh's dad, Brian. Brian is the kind of person that what you see is what you get. You know, what he says to you is what he means. He's very straightforward, very direct. And I, I really appreciate that about him. Parents of missing children deserve our respect, our kindness, and more than anything, they deserve to be listened to. For the better part of 20 years, Brian has maintained that Josh was set up and grabbed. He doesn't really care whether it was a planned or unplanned meeting, whether it was, you know, someone that Josh knew or didn't know. His point all along has been someone took his son. Brian's convinced that Josh is still alive. He has been working with two people in his own investigative way for a number of years, and he'll give you some specifics here in a moment. He's not going to get super specific, but the people that he's been working with, he thinks that they've been able to track Josh's movements. And he has a friend that, uh, a couple friend that, that the wife believes that she saw Josh in Las Vegas in 2003. So take a moment and, and listen to Brian uh, and his friends, Mike and Sue. 
we were walking and there were a ton of people. The first thing, and I look, when I walk, I look down because I, I'm klutz. And anyways, I had seen the loafers, the white socks, the print shorts, and a dark St. John sweatshirt. And I, you know, I was looking at this kid from the bottom up. And I looked at his face. He was flushed red. He looked tired. He didn't have any glasses, but he had his hair spiked like you've got yours. Can I read to you what I have on my journal? Yeah, go ahead. This is day nine, March 28, 2003, location Las Vegas, Nevada. We were up bright and early, ready to head down to the strip. We walked there again, stopping at Circus Circus, and then catching the trolley to Mandalay Bay Casino. We walked down the strip, taking in the amazement construction of all the casinos. I seen a young man wearing St. John's University sweatshirt, which immediately caught my eye. He looked very much like Josh Gimone, the son of our friend, who had been missing since last November. I told Mike to turn around and look at the kid, but by the time we turned around, he was gone. It bothered me the rest of the day. Yeah, this, see this part, I knew nothing of this till later that summer. Brian had told me that he had somebody that might be, you know, if Josh is alive, might where he might be at and then he was saying well right now they he possibly could be in Vegas and then he had made the point about you know down by towards the Luxor and then that's when it just kind of just didn't know what to say at first and then right, I, just I remember that him. it's like <laughs> and I then I told Brian I he said, was well, serious as a heartbeat when he says I got something I gotta tell you yeah, I remember said, I, that I, I gotta tell you something and then I told the story of what we just said, how we saw that, Sue saw that individual down there. So are you aware of any, other than Sue, are you aware of any other sightings, reported sightings over the years? Nope. Okay. I don't remember if I told you this. Remember, I said I was looking at some things and talking to some another individual helping, and there's certain things there that, yeah, no, that, uh, that was Josh you saw that, that day. People are going to push back. They're going to say it's it's you wanting to be hopeful, wishful thinking, yeah. stuff like that. There's absolutely no evidence he's dead. These methods do not work on dead people. You can call this uh, what these methods are is remote directional locating. Quantum physics and electromagnetism are involved. And yeah, I mean, there's this thing with the sighting. Well, how did... Them two didn't know each other. And, never spoke to each other. You know, you can't make that up. <laughs> That's not a coincidence. And I would never make something up like that to hurt Brian. Or, I mean, I, I wouldn't dream of it. You know, so, it I was... Mean, well, and even sometimes after I told Brian, Sue and I talked about it, you know... Uh, was it the right thing to do? It was just because, do you want to get his hopes up? But the fact was, uh, Sue's reaction to it was so strong that I felt I had to tell him because, you know, there's people that disappear maybe voluntarily for six well, months or, you know, so oh, there's yeah, always that chance. Did that, he just take a vacation and didn't you know, tell anybody? We didn't know. What do you want to see happen? This is your son. We're coming up on the 20th year anniversary. The 
you've got a, the public's attention right now. Well, somebody needs to get a conscience is all it's going to take. Thank you to Brian, Mike, and Sue for sitting down with me, for trusting me to talk about this. This has been very tough for Brian to trust that people will uh, listen to him, give him the time of day, and and try to help him in his search for his son and looking for answers. Brian set up a, a GoFundMe years ago to try to get additional resources, and it's just really sad uh, how few people have donated to that. And he hasn't been able to pursue some of the, the leads, the theories that he's been hoping to explore because he hasn't had the funds, the resources, and you know the, the official investigators, especially in those early years, you know, didn't really do a whole lot to consider uh, and explore the things that he that he wanted them to explore, which really, I mean, was the whole idea of foul play to begin with. And so please take a look at uh, the GoFundMe that Brian's got going. We have a link to it on our website. You can also find it via Google and, you know, consider supporting him in his private investigative efforts. One of the leads, and there's actually a lot of leads that go to this angle, uh, is the idea that Josh may have encountered someone that he didn't know uh, in some kind of unplanned meeting and that something bad may have happened. Here's a couple examples that, that go to it that we can talk about. One, in 1999, two University of St. John students were sitting in a computer lab, uh, two men, when a man came in with duct tape and rope and asked them to tie him to a tree. They were uh, freaked out by this and, of course, declined, and the man uh, took off running, and there's been no further information that they're aware of uh, regarding that man's identity or any other similar reports. We're asking you to come forward if you have any such information. As we've talked about in the past, there is a, a story that has been reported that we've heard from a couple different directions now, but are still struggling to get further information. About a year or two prior to Josh's disappearance, uh, a college student or prep school student, we've heard competing information, was dragged into the bushes near St. John's University and his head held underwater. That's all we know at the moment, but there's enough information, time-stamped information, that we need to continue to explore that angle. So if you know anything, please, please reach out. Please contact us. We've also received additional reports of uh, potential suspects, potential names, uh, in terms of those who targeted Anthony, uh, Zach, and, and others, and we, we're working those angles. Now, recall that there's two distinct groups that seem to have emerged through the tips that we've received thus far, and that continues to be the case. There's a younger group of, of men that appear to have been targeting uh, other college-aged men around the time, and then there seems to be an older, as far as I can tell, more sinister group that also seems to have been targeting younger college-age men around the time. One of the leads to this angle that we found, and there are actually quite a few, but I'll give you an example. One of them is a man named Ed Lanfear. Ed is currently serving prison time and will likely be in prison for the rest of his life. He abducted a 20-year-old and a 23-year-old, uh, both men, in central Wisconsin in 2008. He sexually assaulted them. He chained them up in his home in separate places over plastic. He taunted one of the men when the newspaper published uh, reports from the, and this is going to sound familiar, when the local law enforcement suggested that the man had drowned. And 
one of the, the tips that I'm working on is that he had a boat and that he was working, scrambling to try to retrieve that boat from a place that had been working on it at the time of these abductions. He abducted these men. One of them was in a vehicle parked behind a bar. He was avoiding drinking and driving, and he grabbed one of the men that way. The other man was walking down the street, and Lanfear pretended to be a police officer. He brought them both home, chained them up, sexually assaulted them, and if it wasn't for the luck of one man being able to escape when Lanfear went to get cigarettes one day, he ran naked and still partly chained to a neighbor's house where he was able to get help and law enforcement came and, and both men managed to survive. But it seems, based on the evidence, that that was a low probability if Lanfear had kept custody of them. What is the likelihood that this sort of, and I haven't even told you a lot of the details, that this sort of aggressive behavior, that this was the first time that he conducted this? Well, that's a good question. We don't know the answer to, but we are exploring that. Was, you know, did Lanfear always operate alone and always operate in the area that he lived? Uh, or is it possible that he, you know, had acquaintances and, and or that he made the journey a uh, few hours away to Minnesota. We we don't know. But the kind of person that it would take to target a college-aged man, multiple of them, it seems, there can't be, at least I hope, that many of these kinds of people that, that would target men in this kind of sadistic, aggressive way and be able to you know, get away with it. And so we have to explore the angle of these kinds of people, right? And, you know, there are other sexual predators. There are registered sex offenders that had been in the area, that lived in the area at the time of Josh's disappearance. We've received tips relating to some of them, including one that was reported to go out at night, specifically driving and looking for college-aged men. And we have to look beyond the traditional, you know, criminal registered sex offenders as we, as we look for these kinds of people. We have to look at, for example, the monks and lay faculty at St. John's University who had been known to target young men. And you might think, as I did early on, that, well, that targeting, you know, that kind of uh, predatory behavior, it's not the same as, you know, some of these other sex offenders. Well, that may only partially be true. Uh, some allegations regarding Roger Joukowsky. Joukowsky was long gone by the time that Josh went missing, but he had been at St. John's University for a number of years. He even had, for a time, a home in Flintown, the area that Josh was last seen. And famed University of St. John's football coach, John Gallardi, had a home for 50 or so years in Flintown. In fact, his home was right behind Metton Court. It was just feet from where... Josh was last seen. And I'm not meaning to imply that, you know, Gallardi had anything to do with Josh's disappearance, but listen to this story. So the allegations, as I understand them, are that one morning Gallardi opened his door uh, into his garage from his home and found on the garage floor a visiting student who had been 
assaulted, reportedly, by Jerkowski sexually. If that kind of behavior was known to have existed at the university, to the point that Jerkowski even lived, reportedly, at a time with college students who, because of his known behavior, took steps to protect themselves and each other from his advances, if you will, which is a perhaps uh, massive understatement. If that kind of behavior was tolerated and known, and the kind of monks who associated with him, including, from what I understand, Finian MacDonald was known to repeatedly visit Drakowski and spend time. Finian MacDonald is a, a monk who was around at St. John's University at the time of Josh's disappearance, who was a self-described sex addict, who had his files released by St. John's University for preying on young men. If, if people like him and, and so many others at the university were willing to turn a blind eye to that kind of behavior, that behavior of Jerkowski, for example, imagine what may have gone on that we don't know about. Again, I have no idea whether anyone at St. John's University had anything to do with Josh's disappearance, but I am not for a moment going to ignore that possibility with this kind of evidence. And so for the four or five people that complained about episode six because they thought that it was horrendous that we would dare you know, criticize without more evidence. Well, first of all, I don't know what kind of evidence you, you want. I mean, <laughs> Josh, uh, there are more connections to that potential, potential connections between Josh and that scandal that I ever thought, you know, were possible when I first dug into this. And it doesn't change the fact that the kinds of people who target others are very often motivated by sex. And when you have this many people who are engaging in this kind of behavior in one small concentrated area, it would be negligent not to take notice and not to dig into it. And I'm not sure to what extent that's been done by investigators or others in the past. And so as difficult as it is, as hard as it is to raise the prospect that some of these men who unquestionably committed misconduct and, and did horrible things, that they may have gone further than that somehow, as uncomfortable as that is, we still have to do it. Not doing it out of some mistaken sense of propriety or respect is a disrespect and an impropriety to Josh and his family and the other victims that many of which we do not know about that these men have targeted. One especially concerning report that I received recently is that a monk at St. John's University, and, and by the way, this monk was around at the time of Josh's disappearance and may have done this around the exact same time as Josh's disappearance. That this monk may have drugged a student. The allegations that we continue to receive are some of which I cannot even begin to broach here are beyond frightening. 
we're going to explore every angle. The sexual, you know, angle is only one of them. But consider how it plays into every one of the four likely, you know, explanations that that we started talking about. We started this conversation by talking about unplanned meetups with people or unplanned meetup with with someone that Josh didn't know. And it could very well be motivated or have something to do with some kind of, you know, sexual conduct or targeting. And we've bled over into the possibility that it could be with someone that Josh did know uh, and that it may have been planned. And when you consider the the other evidence that we continue to receive, it, it, it requires, it mandates that we explore fully the sexual angle. And, you know, that really could come in many forms. It could be it could be through a planned meeting. It could be through, you know, like a hookup, for example, or uh, some kind of cruising scenario, or it could be uh, completely random. And you know, these these roadside examples uh, that we've talked about, you know, present a, a, another scenario for that. I want you to consider uh, a couple, a young couple who I'm calling Megan and Derek, who in the fall of 2020, it was October 2020, they believe, were walking on Fruit Farm Road, less than a mile from where Josh was last seen. So Fruit Farm Road is on the same, is the same road that Met in Court, you know, Nate Storm was on. At 10.30 or so at night, and they describe a story that is eerily similar to what Jeremy and Jeff described. Now, the reason for sharing this is of the concern that this conduct wasn't limited to November of 2002. In fact, we received other reports uh, from the time you know, prior to Josh's disappearance and to time after Josh's disappearance. The, the way, the manner in which they describe this man's conduct is frightening, and it hopefully will do more than, than scare you. Hopefully it will have people who live in the area who may recognize the description and or the conduct continue to come forward to us and or the, St- the Stearns County Sheriff's Department. Take a listen to what Megan and Derek have to say. Right when we got to the bend at the end of the road, we were probably gonna turn around anyway. Yeah. Um, but this car slowly came around the corner and we felt awkward just because it was dark out. And yeah. It was just us in this car. And no other cars had passed. Like, it's a pretty desolate Yeah, there's no one road. on the road. And um, so this car comes by us. And then naturally, naturally, we're like, okay, let's turn around and go home. Yeah. Um, but then the car, once it gets about 50 to 100 yards away from us, stops. Like, yeah, like pulls over and stops. And... And I kind of waited for to figure out what was going on, mm-hmm. and it was probably only like ten seconds, but yeah. it felt like a really long yeah. time. Um, and then someone opens the door, the, the driver door. The driver opens the door, yeah. And gets out, and just stands there. Mm-hmm. And, and we like had stopped. Oh, go ahead. Because it's ten thirty at night, like yeah. we can't really see his face. We can only see mm-hmm. um, like the red of whatever lights the car was producing. Oh, yeah, and we had, so we had stopped walking too at this point because it was like, oh, the car stopped, like, it was either like 
you keep walking further away like from campus into like into darkness yeah basically. like there's not like street lights or anything and then so it's either that or like I didn't really know and the he also like turned his lights off his headlights off yeah his headlights off so like initially I had thought that like the car turned off but like it was just the lights because the inside stayed dark so like the interior lights didn't come on at all so you like couldn't like see like any facial features or like like clothing color like literally anything because it was so dark and he just like he was like a very tall yeah we could tell like, that he burly, was big though like he got out and like, was, like over six foot for sure and just kind of like like we couldn't see his eyes but like was facing in our direction so like very much so like looking at us I guess um, so we waited and I think I was gonna say something but then we thought that'd be <laughs> a bad idea just because yeah. I don't know and then luckily between us and him closer to us I mean like 10 yards close like yeah. in his direction there was a driveway leading to a house a really long driveway with pine mm -hmm. trees on each side so I thought okay let's just confidently walk up this driveway together like mm -hmm. we're going home yeah. um, so we did that and we got about halfway up the driveway and then ducked behind some trees slash yeah. bushes mm -hmm. and then the guy waited probably like a few seconds yeah and then got in his car and drove towards campus and, that's and then that's like you go around a curve that way too so north he go mm -hmm. he went from south to north and went around another curve toward like, campus yep toward like the Flinttown area you know so we're like okay let's <clears throat> get back to the house of prayer yeah. now so we got back on the road and like quickly started jogging yeah. quickly walking and we see headlights coming back the way that he went from campus yeah so we're like I had the idea let's get in the ditch like just in case because we just didn't in know case for it's sure. him, yeah you know so we did and, and it was like it's a pretty deep ditch which is nice too so we were able to yeah, like he completely like yeah. be under the road and he we knew it was him because he drove by at like a snail's pace and it was really scary yeah like he like could have really easily stopped like it was like that slow that I was like is he stopping is he not yeah um, and then once he was completely gone once he went back south like around the corner away from campus yeah, yeah we got up and, and like, like sprinted booked it to yeah. back to the house why doesn't he say anything that was it that yeah. was the biggest red flag to me because first of all just the car stopping I thought was weird at night when there's two people alone in the woods yeah is kind of a red flag and then when he got out and said nothing that's when I got really scared and kind of froze for a second and yeah. then started to feel like if we don't move now this is gonna be something like foul yeah like or, I don't know what we would have done if the driveway wasn't there because like my f initial thought was like walk in the opposite direction of this guy which would have been like further south right. um, away but then was like like pulled me like into the driveway because he's like like had the plan but like we didn't really want to like talk much because it was like he would have heard us probably mm -hmm. if we were talking but yeah that like the lack of speaking and just like the standing there like he was trying to scare us it felt like yeah it didn't make it sense and the thing that I really don't get is like and looking back at it too like we didn't call the cops and like that seems to like align with like a lot of what people said too but like the way that we thought of it was like nothing 
actually like officially happened like it seemed like something bad could have happened but like well, it was yeah. just like scary you know sure had we known about the previous sure. times this sure. has happened in the past yeah, I would have felt <laughs> more inclined to but, but yeah I felt like it could it was like setting up for something that could have like advanced to be really bad mm-hmm. but If you have any information concerning this incident as described by Megan and Derek or any of the other incidents you've heard about on this podcast, including the men and or vehicles and or any of the other uh, tips and leads that we've discussed, please come forward. You can submit tips anonymously at simplyvanished.com where you can also find a link to submit tips anonymously to the Sheriff's Department. We will see you on November 14th for episode number eight which will, of course, uh, come out after both the Unsolved Mysteries episode about Josh's case and the 20th anniversary of Josh's disappearance. And I'll be at the memorial service for that and hope to provide you some updates and additional comments and, and perhaps interviews from some other people connected to the case by that time. In the meantime, you can stay up to date with the case and uh, hear about some behind-the-scenes developments at simplyvanished.com. You can visit the discussion forum. I will... Otherwise, see you in a few weeks. Thank you very much. Sometimes light is breaking through But my blinded eyes can't reveal an illusion I can't trust it being real So I keep on wondering until I feel you Feel that you're The rivers Ooh.